You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Greetings, everyone. I'm Anatole Manid, Senior Director of Programs for Toronto Centre. Welcome to the role of AML Regulators in Financial Inclusion webinar. Since our establishment in 1998, Toronto Centre has trained more than 20,000 financial supervisors and regulators from 190 jurisdictions to become change agents for building better and more stable, inclusive financial systems. I would like to thank our sponsors, Global Affairs Canada, the Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency, and the International Monetary Fund. Toronto Centre also appreciates the support of Finance Canada over the years. This webinar is being offered in cooperation with the Royal United Services Institute, our partner for the development of the online self-study program on financial inclusion for AML specialists. In 2010, we began incorporating microfinance supervision into our training programs because of the substantial implications for global financial inclusion. Since then, we have expanded our financial inclusion programs to include webinars, podcasts, research papers, and toolkits. We also assisted several jurisdictions to improve their supervisory practice in order to be better prepared for financial sector assessments relating to any money laundering. Ensuring everyone has access to financial services is paramount to sustainable economic development. So is protecting the financial system from money laundering, terrorism financing, and proliferation. It is important to understand the role of financial regulators and supervisors as facilitators of financial inclusion. Access for disadvantaged people in financial services and adopting a proportional risk-based approach to AML CFT oversight. Today, our distinguished speakers will address these challenges and opportunities. They are Risha Goyal, Program Director, Toronto Centre, Mercy Buku, Program Leader, Toronto Centre, Robin Duham, Head of Policy Analysts and Guidance, Alliance for Financial Inclusion, and our moderator is Maria Sophia Reserve. Research assistant, research analyst, the Royal United Services Institute. We would also like to thank the Toronto Centre team for the behind-the-scenes work. You've received the panelists' biographies. Let's begin. Over to you, Maria Sophia. Thank you very much, Anadol, and thank you everybody for joining us today. Um, my name is Maria Sofia Reiser. I'm a research analyst with RUSI Center for Financial Crime and Security, and it's my pleasure to be chairing today's webinar. Before we begin, I want to go over some quick housekeeping matters. So if you want to ask a question throughout the discussion, please use our Q&A box, not the chat, so I can monitor all the questions and direct them to our speakers accordingly. I wanted to add a quick note of what we do at the Center for Financial Crime and Security Studies at RUSI, for those of you who, know, who are not aware of what we do. 
We are a specialist research program within RUSI on the intersections between finance and security. And this project is part of our financial inclusion work, which has been funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We have been developing two e-learning modules on financial inclusion, one for national regulators in collaboration with the Toronto Centre, and we have a separate one coming out for the private sector with ACOMS. Risha, who is joining us today, has been working with us closely in the development and coordination of this training, and Mercy also joining today has been supporting with the content development of the program. Robin from AFI has also shared invaluable knowledge and insights for the development of the training through feedback, through conversations, and through his experience working on financial inclusion. And with that, I would like to begin the discussion by with talking about what is financial inclusion and why is it important. So Robin, if you could please uh, share your thoughts on what financial inclusion is and what it, why is it important, especially for disadvantaged groups, and looking at why is it important that everybody can access regulated financial services. Well, thank you so much, uh, Maria Sofia, and thank you very much indeed to the Toronto Centre and to Rusi as well for the invitation to the Alliance for Financial Inclusion uh, to participate in this webinar today. And just by way of context, before I answer the question, AFI is representing a membership of around 85 or so central banks and financial regulators from the Global South who do all share a common mission um, to advance financial inclusion in their jurisdictions through effective policy making. So I'm really pleased to share some insights on behalf of the Alliance uh, today. So when we're talking about financial inclusion, there is no one single universal definition because country context really matters here. But what we are essentially talking about is a state in which everyone, um, regardless of gender, age, ethnicity, or any other characteristics, has access to the financial tools and capabilities um, that they need to manage money day to day, um, to cushion against economic shocks and build resilience, but also to plan for the future and achieve their long-term financial goals and lead financially healthy lives. And how do we get to that state where everyone is included and confident in using financial services in, in that way? Well, there's really three critical dimensions to the financial inclusion policymaking process there. One is to look at access and ensure that everyone, as far as possible, has an entry point into the financial system, which usually means access to a basic transaction account or a mobile money account as a gateway into the financial system. But then we also need to look at the dimension of usage and how uh, we can really ensure that those financial products are meeting the real needs that people have. So digitizing government payments or increasing merchant acceptance of digital payments, these interventions can be very critical to, to ensure enhanced usage. And then the third dimension we describe as the quality um, dimension. So ensuring that there is effective competition amongst providers, affordable costs to the consumer, and also that there's clear recourse mechanisms and consumer protection um, if things do go wrong. 
So that is how we would characterize financial inclusion. And of course, the flip side of that financial exclusion means to be outside of the system, also often to be economically excluded, socially excluded as well. So it's a really, really a vicious cycle of exclusion and marginalization that we need to break through um, effective policy interventions. To, to tackle the next part of, of Maria Sophia's question on the benefits of financial inclusion, I think we can look at that both in terms of the micro and, and the macro benefits. Um, so for the, the individual or the household, um, of course, there are benefits in terms of the economic opportunities that financial inclusion um, unlocks. And we can see that from studies, for example, in, in Kenya, uh, where more than one million households were brought out of extreme poverty by having access to M-Pesa, the mobile money system that has flourished there over the last decade. Uh, and we've also seen that in countries such as Indonesia, where micro entrepreneurs have been connected to digital platforms, that has really created a lot of income generating opportunities, um, as well as uh, enhancing efficiency in their overall operations. But beyond the benefits for individuals, there's also a lot of benefits for countries to seriously prioritize um, financial inclusion um, as a policy objective. Firstly, it actually reinforces other financial sector policymaking goals, such as financial stability and financial integrity. Um, if we have a broader retail deposit base amongst financial institutions that can actually serve to strengthen um, financial stability, something that's coming very much back into the, the forefront of policymaking with, with recent um, vulnerabilities that are, that are rising. But also looking at financial integrity, you want to bring as many transactions as possible into the formal system where it can be monitored um, out of the shadows um, where, as we know, money laundering and terrorist financing um, can thrive. So financial inclusion is part of an essential overall um, holistic approach to financial sector policymaking. But there are also benefits in terms of broader sustainable development, and that is why financial inclusion is positioned in the sustainable development goals as a key enabler um, to multiple of those goals. And just to give a couple of examples there, if we look at the sustainable development goal um, for gender equality, there's very strong evidence that when digital payments um, are made directly into a woman's account, that that will actually empower her in terms of um, autonomy within the household, also encourage her to seek um, work outside of the household. If we look at the Sustainable Development Goal 13 on climate action, financial products can have a very important ro role in building resilience to climate events. Um, we have seen the development of digital crop insurance products, for example, across sub-Saharan Africa that are allowing farmers to receive automatic and fast um, payouts uh, when adverse climate events um, do strike. And that's something they wouldn't have been able to avail of without the development of mobile money and the digital financial services um, ecosystem. Just to touch um, finally on, on disadvantaged groups and why this is really an important priority. And if we look at financial inclusion as a whole, um, there's really been a tremendous amount of progress across the last 10 years. Um, we have good data on this now by virtue of the World Bank's FINDEX, as well as a lot of national data collection efforts um, that show that more than one and a half billion adults have been included. Uh, in the formal system um, across the last decade. 
But what that means is we really need to look at who is at risk of being left behind and where do we need to target specific interventions. Um, and that would include very much the gender dimension. Many countries do still have a significant um, gender gap in financial access. Often there's a lot of social and cultural factors um, underlaying that. We also need to look at the youth population who tend to be disproportionately excluded, and that's really key for countries that want to take advantage of that demographic dividend of having a growing young population. Then also groups like persons with disabilities, um, forcibly displaced persons as well, whose numbers are also growing as a result of, of clim um, climate events and unfortunately conflict um, and persecution um, as well. So all of those groups need targeted um, strategies to really ensure that we're leaving no one behind um, in the process of, of financial inclusion. And fi final point here, just to touch on why regulate. So of course, unregulated informal financial services can play a role in financial inclusion. I think we should not dismiss them out of hand, thinking, for example, of the village savings and loans programs that you have in, in Africa. They, they are popular, they play an important role. But what regulated access to regulated service brings is the element of of um, deposit insurance uh, and just an overall um, greater level of trust as well as the ability to build up a transaction record that can be used for access um, to other financial products. So I think you know informal services are not necessarily the enemy but ultimately the end goal should be um, to progress as many as possible into um, safe regulated formal services. Um, so I'll leave it there for the intro and back to you Maria Sofia. Thank you so much for giving that very thorough overview of what it means when you consider financial inclusion, financial exclusion, and how can this be achieved. I want to highlight one point you made by directing a question to Risha, and you talked about financial inclusion being important for financial sector policy objectives, especially financial integrity. So I wanted to ask Risha to develop a bit more on this idea, looking at the risk-based approach in the context of anti-money laundering efforts, and how can this, the other way around, hinder financial inclusion, or how can these facilitate financial inclusion? Thank you very much, Maria Sofia, and thank you, Robin, for setting the stage and uh, emphasizing the direct uh, impact or relationship between financial inclusion, financial stability, and financial in integrity and most important, importantly, the sustainable development goals that can be achieved through a successful financial inclusion strategy. Um, in terms of risk-based approach in context of AML, um, it's interesting. I've been uh, into AML supervision and uh, uh, compliance officer, anti-money laundering recruiting officer for over two decades. And a uh, risk-based approach comes quite naturally to different business operations that I have been involved in. But when I started uh, working uh, you know, in financial inclusion and looked at the AML from that perspective, I realized there's quite often a misunderstanding that the AML obligations prevent or hinder financial inclusion. But is it, but is it really the case? So uh, I'll just dwell a little bit, a bit upon what is the risk-based approach in context of AML. And I hope by the end of this brief, you will feel uh, where the balance is. Um, countries are required to establish a legislative framework 
and regulate and supervise the financial services providers in compliance with Financial Action Task Force FATF recommendations. I'm sure all of you are familiar with the role of FATF. The underlying purpose of these standards is to ensure that these services are not being abused for money laundering, terrorist financing, proliferation financing, or any other criminal activity. Under FATF recommendation one, the first recommendation itself, countries, including supervisors and other authorities, are required to identify, assess, and understand the risks of money laundering, terrorist financing for different market segments, intermediaries, and products on an ongoing basis, employ a risk-based approach to take action, and invest resources to mitigate this risk. At the same time, the financial institutions are also required to understand, identify, and assess money laundering risks relevant to their own activities. The risk-based approach was actually adopted as a mandatory measure in the FATF recommendations over a decade ago, actually in 2012. Further, in recommendation 10, FATF sets out customer due diligence measures that apply to all the financial institutions' customer relationships following the risk assessment of the customer. FATF goes on to adopt a series of guidance notes to assist regulators and private sectors in applying risk-based approach. This guidance calls on understanding risk and existing mitigation and prevention mechanisms at the national, sectoral, product, and customer level. FATF also allows exemptions or simplified measures in some situations. But it's worth noting that financially excluded persons, the ones that Robin alluded to, do not automatically qualify for these. It is up to the country to define these circumstances as well as the exemptions or simplified measures based on a sound national and sectoral risk assessment. For example, low-income users uh, may be categorized as low-risk, to enable them to access just basic savings account, uh, which, could have which could have restricted transactional limits. For example, that's the case for zero balance accounts in India, where the barriers to entry are the lack of acceptable identification document. It may be possible to use simplified ID or biometrics or no physical identification for a certain threshold like was designed by Mexico. Refugees and displaced women and men might need recognition of their former national identification document or other international ID documents in their new country to access banking services. I hope this brief, brief explanation gives you a glimpse into the purpose of FATF standards and the flexibility it offers to the countries, the supervisors and regulators to adapt these standards to your particular jurisdiction and the landscape. Thank you, Marisofia. Thank you, Risha. And discussing the Financial Action Task Force, which is a big element of how risk, the risk-based approach and financial sector supervision is implemented, do you think there are unintended consequences of these standards? And how is the FATF actually dealing with this when it regards to financial inclusion? Uh, certainly, uh, and that's been a big takeaway, uh, you know, because of the discussion that has been at, in the space of financial inclusion. So in 2019, actually, FATF first time formally recognized its long-standing commitment to support and promote financial inclusion in its mandate. Uh, 
Just two years back, FATF established actually a project team to analyze and better understand the unintended consequences resulting from FATF standards and their implementation. The project in particular examined the areas of de-risking and financial exclusion. At that point, FATF indicated that actually the uh, misapplication of FATF standards, in particular, the failure to use proportionality, which is central component of risk-based approach, can lead to financial exclusion. In fact, it is the rules-based requirements which increase inclusion barriers as financial institutions are either not willing to take on or unable to mitigate the money laundering risks that they are exposed to. Uh, FATF also identified two uh, main factors uh, which contribute to financial inclusion. The first one was actually the implementation issues, which are at the country or private sector level, where some of the customer due diligence measures were not being implemented as intended by the FATF standards. And second was actually for FATF itself, where it was the FATF standards mutual evaluation process and other activities do not actually encourage the authorities, the private sector, and the assessors themselves to analyze and understand the impact of financial inclusion on money laundering risks in a country. Uh, so depending on the type of customer and product, the cost and extent of customer due diligence, which is both initial as well as ongoing, can be quite significant. To avoid these costs, actually the financial institutions often take the easy way out. And that is to either close the account, discontinue products or exit the relationship on a wholesale basis, rather than spend the time and resources assessing individual customer risk and having the systems and controls in place to mitigate and manage that risk. De-risking has in fact contributed to the reduction of uh, corresponding banking relationships in some countries. I'm sure quite a few of you are familiar with that, as well as it made it more difficult, for example, for money services providers to access banking services and the nonprofit organizations as well. So the purpose of an effective customer due diligence is to deter criminal elements from attempting to use the financial sector for illicit purposes. It is not intended to prevent access to financial services to legitimate customers. FATF is actually planning to address financial inclusion going forward, so possibly including changes to standards to address de-banking and de-risking. Of course, this will require striking a balance between the customer due diligence measures that take the needs of financially excluded and the need to preserve risk-based measures that act as a deterrent to bad actors. Thank you, Risha. I think it's an important conversation to have from one side, hoping to see more from standard setters like the FATF to encourage regulators and the private sector to think about financial inclusion, but also a conversation to have with regulators and the private sector to, to be able to further these objectives. Um, with that, I wanted to move to the other side of the equation and ask Mercy. Um, so we're talking about inclusion and how achieving these objectives is really important for development goals, like Robin mentioned. But at the same time, supervisors need to ensure that financial services are offered in a responsible manner. So what measures should financial service providers adopt 
to ensure the protection of customers that are using their services. Um, <clears throat> thank you very much, Maria Sofia. Um, and um, thank you also, uh, Toronto Center and Rusi, for um, including me on this panel. It is a privilege. Um, so, straight uh, to the question, um, I'll just highlight um, four examples of key measures that FSPs can adopt to ensure the protection of consumers using their services. Because, after all, if consumers are not protected, if they are not comfortable using um, financial services, uh, then, you know, then our financial inclusion objectives really will not be met. So one of these um, measures is fraud mitigation. Um, and when we look at fraud mitigation, we're also looking at data privacy, consumer risk management measures. Um, these, for example, would involve the implementation of systemic and procedural controls uh, to curb digital financial services frauds, for example, or cybercrime. Um, and, and also safeguard the customer's uh, data privacy. So um, you know, the, we'd expect the FSPs to have these controls in place if it's automated um, transaction monitoring systems, um, ensuring that um, they're not using um, customer information without their consent, et cetera. And ensuring that they have controls in place, for example, uh, sensitizing consumers on how to use their PIN, um, how to keep their information secure. And then um, another measure is uh, fair, market, fair market practices. And this involves uh, providing financial services in a fair and transparent manner. For example, no hidden charges or unfair and lengthy contract terms, contracts and agreements um, in a language that you know, the consumer can understand, um, accuracy and sales promotion materials. And again, in a language that the consumer can understand, um, they don't promise the earth and, and deliver, you know, a little piece of, of nothing. And then uh, full disclosure of relevant information, for example, such as interest rates and fees to enable consumers make informed decisions and choices upfront so that when they are entering into an engagement, uh, when they are opening that account, when they are seeking that credit facility, they are fully aware of uh, what it will cost them um, how long it will take them to repay, and what other avenues there are, for example, if they want, you know, for example, to prepay, or if they want to take an additional amount, etc. Um, and then um, another key measure is um, redress, complaints recourse. Um, here we are talking about mechanisms to, for consumers to voice their complaints uh, to the FSP. Um, where do they do this? Um, is there, are there reporting hotlines? Is there a complaint center? Um, so so um, does the provider have a call center where um, complaints can be, uh, can be received? Um, here we are talking about dedicated service desks, for example, with appropriate follow-up for resolution and even alternative dispute resolution options so that the, the, you know, the, the customer does not feel that they have to run to court. So all these mechanisms need to be in place. Then another key measure is um, financial and digital financial, um, digital financial literacy um, and education. So generally financial literacy and education. Um, so it's very important for customers to know exactly um, what the products are, what their features are, um, so, so, so how do FSPs do this? They should provide, um, you know, adequate information 
in their promotional materials. Um, FSPs can even collaborate with uh, their regulators to ensure that, um, uh, that consumers are getting this education. Um, and, and not only about the products, what are the risks um, to them from using that product? So for example, if it's mobile money, uh, which is um, prone to, to frauds and even other products, they need to be aware of the fraud trends and how to protect themselves. Um, and, and complaints mechanisms and dispute resolution also come in um, uh, in as far as financial literacy is concerned. So those are four key measures, um, uh, Maria Sophia, that I would um, recommend that FSPs put in place. Thank you, Marcy. And discussing these measures, as we're looking at the role of the supervisor, how can supervisors ensure that these measures are being implemented by financial service providers in a way that enables financial inclusion. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Maria, Sophia. Um, so since I've already highlighted um, the measures that FSPs need to put in place, so supervisors here then come in to ensure that these measures are being implemented by FSPs. And, um, and, and these measures should also, um, should not be so stringent that they then hinder or impact upon financial inclusion initiatives. So um, one of the measures, um, the key measures that they can put in place, of course, is legislation. Um, this legislation should also have appropriate consumer protection and data pr privacy provisions, um, which would make it mandatory uh, for FSPs to implement, um, uh, to implement the measures. They can also put in place policy measures and guidance uh, to guide FSP. So normally the legislation will be put in place. It is important to have um, enabling regulations um, either enacted as legislation or um, the regulators themselves can come up with guidance uh, to guide FSPs in the implementation of those measures. And, um, uh, and Risha has, has, has highlighted um, um, quite a bit of information about the risk-based approach. And these policy measures should also be based um, on a risk-based approach. So they're not making it so stringent on FSPs that uh, then they decide they are not, you know, it's not worth um, offering those products or even make it so, making it so stringent, you know, for customers that they decide they are not going to take up those products either. And then industry collaboration is very, very uh, key. Uh, here we are talking about collaboration between consumer interest groups, um, FSPs, um, um, and here banking, digital finance, etc., financial inclusion agencies uh, who will come up with the data and do the research and come up with um, industry um, insights on how uh, these consumer protection measures can be put in place, how they can be improved, what the loopholes are, um, and, and this will provide appropriate support towards achieving the legislative reforms. And um, another, another key me me measure is market monitoring. This enables uh, supervisors to gain insights into consumer experiences. And of course, this should focus on consumer outcomes and financial health. And industry collaboration and market mo monitoring actually go hand in hand uh, because this is where then the supervisors get the necessary and relevant information about the market in order to enable them to understand what the risks to the consumer are, and also um, um, what measures can be put in place uh, to protect the consumer. 
Thank you very much, um, uh, Maria Sofia. Thank you, Marzi, for giving us the perspective of what the private sector should be doing, but how the supervisors and regulators can ensure that this does not hinder financial inclusion, but actually supports these objectives. And with that, I wanted to link back to Robin from your experience working with regulators and central banks, um, especially in the global south. What do you see the role these institutions play Within, when interacting with financial institutions and their strategies on financial inclusion. Yeah, thank you very much, Maria Sophia, for for the question. Uh, so, so thinking about that, there's at least uh, four roles that I would characterize that central banks, financial regulators can can play here. One is the role of rule setter. The second is the role of convener. Third is the role of innovation enabler. And then fourthly, the role of capability builder. And I'll just say a little bit more to go into each of those um, elements. When it comes to rule setting, especially when we're thinking about how do you expand access to digital financial inclusion, um, regulations are, are really key. It's essential, for example, to have an e-money regulatory framework um, that provides a level playing field, including for non-banks to come into the game. We've seen again and again um, that that's a critical um, underpinning to en enhance access um, rapidly. Um, we also see the importance of having agent banking regulations because no country is going to go digital overnight. You need to have those cash in, cash out outlets, and they need to be working in the rural areas if you're really going to encourage people to transact digitally and use digital payment um, products. Then, of course, also what was mentioned by Risha, you need the tiered KYC to ensure that there are simplified due diligence um, um, possibilities for low risk, assessed low risk bank accounts or mobile money accounts um, that may have a lower standard of identification and verification um, required. And also regulators play a key role in driving interoperability between um, service providers. It, it's no good having digital access if you're really trapped in a closed loop system that one provider um, is offering. You really need to have interoperability between different service providers and for that to be relatively seamless. And we've seen in countries like Tanzania and Peru that the regulators very, played a very key role in driving that um, ultimately towards voluntary agreements, but with the regulator really facilitating um, the process. But in addition to the rule setting uh, role, we have the convening role. And there I'm thinking very much of the national financial inclusion strategies that um, the majority um, of countries that are seriously interested in pursuing financial inclusion um, have now adopted. And very often you will see the central bank being uh, either in the driving seat or at least designated as the sort of implementer in chief of the national financial uh, inclusion strategy. Um, so we've seen countries like Nigeria, which I think was the first back in 2012 to have a national strategy. Um, there's a secretariat sitting in the bank that will oversee um, all elements of the national inclusion strategy, um, work across other regulators and public sector bodies, but also be the interface um, with the private sector um, as well. Um, so really holding the pen on, on the national strategy and seeing that through into implementation um, is a very key role. 
But thirdly, the innovation enabler, and that may be a little bit surprising when we're talking about regulators and, and innovation. Um, but we have seen, I think, a real mindset shift here. Uh, many regulators have established innovation hubs that are really points of contact for fintech innovators, other new players in digital financial services to just engage with the regulator and the central bank um, before the point at which you know an enforcement action um, is needed so that they're aware of which regulations they need to comply with and that the central bank is aware of market developments um, at the same time. We've also seen innovation in areas like regulatory sandboxes where specific um, products can be piloted uh, with some uh, lighter touch regulations, but they still have to comply with consumer protection and AML um, regulations. And then um, fourthly, the role of capability builder. And this was mentioned a bit by uh, Mercy, the importance of financial literacy. And also I would add in digital financial literacy there as well, very key to have good um, cyber hygiene as more and more financial transactions are, are going online. And many central banks are playing a very active role there. The Reserve Bank um, of Malawi has worked with its education ministry to ensure financial literacy has been embedded in the school curriculum. Um, Bank Nagara Malaysia is another very good example where they take a roadshow um, every year around the country um, to specifically capability build for digital financial literacy. Um, so the central bank here, I think, think is playing many hats, um, not just its regulatory mandate, but actually a much broader um, role um, beyond that to really um, drive results when it comes to financial inclusion strategies. Thank you, Robin. It's an interesting point of how the regulator can also play a role in innovation enabling and also capacity building and not only supervising the financial or non-financial businesses. Um, sector. And this idea has come up a lot in our discussions, that, that of digital financial services, digital payment methods. Um, so I wanted to ask Mercy, who I know works a lot with this, how do you think these new products and services that hopefully are being supported with innovation from the central bank and from supervisors, how can they and have they contributed to financial inclusion me measures, particularly in developing countries. Um, thank you very much once again, Maria Sofia. Um, so when we are talking about uh, um, NPPS, um, or new payment products and services, NPPS, um, we are referring to, if, if we are referring to the, the definition that's given um, under the FATF uh, guidance note for NPPS um, in the 2013, credit and debit cards, mobile money, and other DFS, uh, digital financial services. And more recently, um, virtual asset services have, have been added uh, to that uh, definition. Um, and with particular regard to developing economies, um, we are really looking more at mobile financial services or digital financial services. And these have been at the center of financial inclusion initiatives, especially in Sub-Saharan Africa, and Southern Asia. Um, there have been several reasons why this has been so, mainly the lack of access to traditional financial services. So for example, um, you know, most of the unbanked populations, they do not have access to traditional um, outlets. They can't get to a bank, they can't open the bank account, um, but mobile financial services make it easier for them to have access 
because everybody has a phone. Um, and, and, and this brings me to the next point, the unavailability of efficient and alternative remittance systems in these regions. So for example, um, you'd have the Western unions, you know, the big names would be operating, uh, but the big names would probably only um, be dealing with those who had, who had, you know, bank accounts, et cetera. Uh, but mobile money is available to all, provided you have a phone. Um, and so the prevalence of cheap mobile phones, the wide acceptance of mobile money and even digital financial services as a, as a suitable alternative to traditional banking services. And then again, uh, favorable regulatory environments. Um, since M-Pesa was launched um, in Kenya, for example, and other countries, East Africa, West Africa, um, one of the reasons why um, mobile money and other digital financial services have become um, so have 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 spread and they are so widely prevalent in these countries uh, is because the regulators have had an open mind. Uh, they've created favorable regula regulatory environments, and and they've also instituted good supervisory practices, uh, which have fostered innovation. For example, through regulatory sandboxes. And Robin uh, mentioned these. Um, and then, of course, during the COVID season, uh, we saw um, enhanced regulatory measures, um, which which were actually had which actually had the objective of encouraging increased cashless payments. This was seen as a way uh, to prevent the spread of, of COVID. So these are some of the reasons, um, um, or some some of the ways in which uh, NPPS um, have contributed to financial. Uh, inclusion measures. Thank you so much, Mercy. I would like to take the opportunity after this discussion, I feel like we've covered the basics, the introduction, the standard setters to the private sector, to the role of supervisors. I want to invite all of you in the audience to pose your questions in the Q&A box so I can direct them to our panelists today and continue our discussion. And with that, we have one question from Nicole in the Q&A for Robin on what is the role of supervisors in promoting inclusive insurance growth? Robin, if you could share your thoughts on that, please. Thank you very much for, for the question. Um, excellent question. Uh, I think, yeah, I mentioned the, the sort of bigger picture that most countries are making good progress when it comes to transaction accounts. And I think it's natural now to look at the sort of next generation challenges and how to meet financial needs across the life cycle and also to deal with adverse events that may occur in terms of health events or climate events. And insurance plays um, a really key role there. A lot of developing countries, I think, are still at a relatively um, low level of insurance um, penetration, but I think that is starting to, to shift. And we work quite closely with a parallel network, the Access to Insurance um, Initiative, which you know has done a lot of work with um, insurance um, regulators around proportionality and, and enhancing access. I think a good place to start is really embedding insurance within the national financial inclusion strategy, because once you have a clear target there and it's um, seen as part of the financial inclusion vision, that will start to drive into regulator um, coordination and also private sector 
um, response uh, at the national level. Uh, and we did develop some joint guidance with the A2II on how countries could look at integrating insurance in the NFIS um, process. We've looked at a couple of other dimensions as well. When it comes to, to health insurance and increasing access to universal health care, I think there's a very um, good opportunity in terms of connecting um, digital wallets to health insurance products. You can really get down the um, distribution cost using the digital mechanisms. So there's a lot of um, uh, possibilities there. And also, I think crop insurance um, is another very key one in terms of the connection to financial inclusion of smallholder farmers, um, the disruptive impacts of climate change, adverse weather events that we're seeing again and again with, with more frequency. Um, so don't necessarily have all the answers, but I think this is a really important area to focus on going forwards. Thank you, Robin, and thank you for everybody sending in your questions. Um, I think the next one would be directed to Mercy. Um, the question is, how effective consumer complaint systems are for the low-income rural populations and others with limited access? Um, Betty in the Q&A mentions that they have not seen them as effective in SSA regulators. So people are seeing um, even the digital aspect as very risky to leave funds in over time. So how would you respond to that? Like, How effective are these systems where consumers can access the providers of, of these digital systems and allow them to have more trust in the system? Um, thank you very much, uh, Maria Sofia. I was actually just looking for the question under Q&A, but I've seen that uh, Risha has, um, has posted it on the chat. Um, yes, um, if, 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 if you recall from my comments, I had mentioned that it is very important for financial service providers to actually go down to the grassroots and, and go down to the level of the consumer. Um, the consumer needs to be able to trust them. And actually this is um, one of the main objectives of, of, you know, of having a good consumer protection um, initiative. Uh, so they, sh they, they should be able to approach um, the FSP, be able to speak to them um, in a language that they can understand. Um, um, and, and, and it shouldn't matter whether they are low income or not. Um, this, the, the call centers and uh, the initiatives should target both the high income and the low income uh, pe people. And um, so one way of doing this, especially for those who probably will not even be able to call the bank, is to actually have roadshows, um, go around the rural areas, go around the trading centers, tell them who you are, um, you know, and, 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 and actually get the feedback on the ground on what the challenges, um, what, what are the challenges they are having and, and you know, come up with solutions. Uh, so really it is um, a concentrated um, in initiative which needs you know, to be continuous, um, just to find out what the needs are, what the risks are, what the risks they're facing, and how can they be addressed. So thank you very much. Thank you, Mercy. And I see another question for Risha. Um, does the FATF need to come up with new recommendations purposely to address financial inclusion, 
or provide uh, what we call the interpretive notes to the recommendations to avoid the misapplication of the current um, 40 recommendations. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Maria Sophia, and thanks for this question. I think that's kind of a million dollar question perhaps, uh, but we do believe uh, there would be certainly uh, more weightage, more emphasis that FATF would place on financial inclusion. There is already a guidance from FATF on financial inclusion, um, but uh, at the same time, as I mentioned about the work that has been undertaken as part of the unintended consequences project, there is clear recognition of the issues uh, that FATF standards are having uh, in terms of uh, on financial inclusion. So we do expect that there would be further modification, not changes, but modification to the existing standards especially to reflect upon the outcome of the project that was undertaken two years back, in particular laying out, uh, you know, uh, the work, the, the kind of impact of de-risking and de-banking. Uh, but at the same time, FATF already recognizes that uh, the standards are not expected to lead to de-risking. So they may provide more guidance uh, to facilitate uh, both the regulators and financial institutions not to apply de-risking uh, and perhaps move more towards having a risk-based approach to ensure that they can provide inclusive financial services. Um, at the same time, uh, I think I just wanted to cover one more point. Uh, um, no, I think it will come back to me. So uh, the other point, yes, sorry. I was just thinking about it when I saw the question and it slipped my mind. The other area which would also get a lot of emphasis from FATA, hopefully, is the mutual evaluation process. Remember, I touched upon it as two of the important outcomes from that project. So we believe that there would be much more guidance that would come out as part of the mutual evaluation process for the countries, for the financial institutions, and for the assessors themselves, so that there is a far more open dialogue on the role that FATF standards play on financial inclusion in the countries. So this is perhaps an area which you should also look out for uh, once we have the second next round of mutual evaluations by FATF. And I think Robin would like to add as well to my point. Sorry, this topic is quite close to our hearts, so just wanted to to chime in as as well and um, build on Risha's point. I think one area that we've seen as a challenge for many of our members when it comes to applying um, the risk-based approach um, that Risha's described is the asymmetry that exists um, whereby uh, enhanced due diligence measures are required for higher risk scenarios, um, but for lower risk scenarios, simplified due diligence is only an option for the country. So the onus is really on the countries to identify uh, low risk and then put in place proportionate measures um, accordingly. But when it comes to incentives, of course, all the incentives are to focus on the high risk because you know that that is what the assessors um, are likely to focus on. And so resources tend to be allocated there and not so much resources go into the identification of lower risk or low risk when it comes to the national risk assessment um, process. And I think as a result of that, 
there's quite an underutilization of the flexibilities that do exist um, in the FATF standards, especially ironically amongst the countries that really need to use that flexibility the most. So the ones that have the highest proportion of financially um, excluded. So I think it's really important um, as part of the ongoing work um, in, in FATF um, to look at the incentives and how the incentives can be um, better aligned, whether that is through amendments to the recommendations or through other methods that I know are being explored um, as well. Thank you. I want to make a quick note of that, as Robin says, this is something that's really close to our hearts, but just something that Risha mentioned, uh, linked to what Robin just discussed, is the new round of mutual evaluations there's a new methodology and assessors are being trained on incorporating financial inclusion and consider on how to consider it in this mutual evaluation as evalu uh, assessment so hopefully as the years go by and we start seeing the results of the new publications of these reports we'll see much more of an emphasis being given by the FATF to financial inclusion um with that I want to ask Mercy, a question we have on the Q&A box. Um, so look, thinking of regulators, how do you strike a balance between ensuring financial stability and financial inclusion in terms of proportional regulation, taking in consideration innovations that are heavily reliant on technology that can be classified as high risk? And they mentioned, for instance, issues relating to fraud and ensuring cybersecurity measures are enforced, especially for lower tier financial institutions that are actually seeking to promote financial inclusion through digital financial services. So I think the question is, how do you ensure financial stability and financial inclusion being balanced? So how do you achieve this financial integrity when looking at risks yeah, such as fraud and cybersecurity? Yeah, thank, thank you very much, Maria Sofia. Um, yes, I think that is always one of the challenges for supervisors in terms, and even for, for FSPs on how to balance the two. Um, you know, even just speaking from a financial, uh, from an FSP perspective, when I was in, in risk and compliance, uh, that used to be one of our major headaches because we would be insisting um, to the business that they must put in place the necessary controls before they launch products. And it wasn't easy. So we had to, like, you know, make some concessions along the way, ensure that, um, I mean, for example, if the documents were there, um, if, if the product, for example, um, was at a particular level in terms of, uh, like, for example, the transaction limits, the volumes, then this particular KYC would, uh, would apply, etc. But in, but where supervisors are concerned, um, I think first and foremost, it's it's very very important. Uh, to ensure that they are enabling uh, regulatory frameworks, and and in end the national financial inclusion strategies are responsive uh, to customer needs. So both of these, the frameworks and the financial inclusion strategies, uh, must provide for financial inclusion and integrity. So um, we are looking at if it's issues of customer due diligence, digital onboarding uh, policies allow for risk-based approach uh, to customer due diligence. Again, there's a need for the right mindset. It's very important to understand the financial needs of the consumers and also the objectives of the FSPs. Um, another thing is that um, for another, another issue is the policy objectives. Um, the policy objectives must be aligned um, to both uh, provision for financial inclusion 
and integrity. So what, um, how can, how, you know, what, what policies can you put in place to ensure that uh, you're driving the financial inclusion agenda, uh, but ensuring that there's sufficient oversight on the FSPs um, to ensure that they are offering this, this, um, uh, their services responsibly. Uh, and again, um, as we mentioned earlier, the consumer protection, um, the KYC, all these need to be there and need to be addressed. Um, again, they cannot do this without having regular information on product trends, um, reliance on, and on data, data collection, analysis of that data, um, and then, of course, promoting the development and approval of all new products, for example, through uh, regulatory sandboxes. So they must work hand in hand um, with, uh, with the FSPs on this um, to ensure that, yes, while the laws are in place uh, and they are being adhered to, um, then come up with ways in which, uh, for example, which will allow, um, um, come up with guidelines which will allow um, the, the, the FSPs provide the services and and uh, that brings me to the I, I i happened to see one of the questions which um i believe was also for me and this was um should should regulators um put in place kyc guidance and i yeah, and yes i i think it is very important uh, for regulators to have guidelines on 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 risk on the risk-based approach uh, because the law would much as the law would allow uh, for tiered KYC, for example, and will provide for for um, for FSPs to um, to to incorporate risk assessment in in their programs, the the regulators have to come up with the guidance to enable uh, the 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 FSPs to do this. So yes, I would say it is it's, it's very important uh, for regulators to come up not only with KYC guidance but with guidance on all aspects. Um, of the of the anti money laundering um, uh, uh, compliance program. Thanks. Thank you, Mercy. Risha, do you want to add to this question, or do you want to answer the next question that, that uh, I just received the Q and A? Yeah, thanks, Maria Sophie. I just wanted to add uh, to the final point from uh, Mercy on uh, the processes or setting the guidance for the KYC. I just wanted to add a word of caution here. Remember, we are emphasizing the risk-based approach uh, to AML. So I would just, again, caution that we don't move towards rule-based requirements on AML, uh, just because the risk, if, uh, you know, application of KYC should be based on risk assessment of your product and customers and the sector. So if the regulator goes down the route of being too prescriptive, it would not be so much risk-based because then all financial institutions would start applying those rules to all businesses, all products, and all customers. So just keep that in mind that the role of regulator is to uh, issue regulations and guidance, as Mercy said, but not being too prescriptive uh, in terms of how the KYC process should be undertaken by the financial institutions. Thank you. Thank you, Risha. I'm very mindful of time. So I see we have a final question in the box. Um, I don't know if either of you have thoughts on this. Um, so how does the national final financial inclusion strategy cater for persons with disability with regard to cybersecurity measures? I don't know if any of you have thoughts of this, but I would say this would be the last question we're taking because I'm, I'm very mindful of, of time. 
I'm happy to make a comment on on that, Maria Sophia. So, yeah, I think it's a great question. It's very encouraging. We're starting to see more and more focus on this population segment. In terms of the national strategy, it's really early days in terms of seeing any country um, prioritize this group in, in the national strategy. But we're starting to see countries like Nigeria, Ghana, Pakistan coming out with policies, coming out with circulars to their financial institutions. Of course, persons with disabilities is an enormous uh, group, so it's really important to segment the different challenges uh, and needs because that would include, you know, wheelchair users for whom the issue might be physical access to a bank branch. It would include um, blindness, deafness, and so on, where there might be solutions around looking at um, artificial intelligence-based um, assistance that could support, but there would also be mental disabilities as well. Um, so I don't don't have the answers for certain, but it's really important that the regulator in the process of developing that national strategy reaches out to those groups and intermediaries that can really help them understand the different um, needs and that they respond um, accordingly. But definitely, I think we are going to see more and more focus uh, here going forwards. Thank you, Robin. And with that, we've made it all the way through to the hour. So I would like to uh, ask Risha if she could share with us some closing remarks and perhaps discuss the training that we have that we have already released actually a bit with with the participants. Thank you very much, Maria Sophia. Very interesting session. I think it's not a topic for an hour, as we realize now. I just wanted to emphasize some of the key points and perhaps messages we sh should certainly take away from our discussion today. Uh, one of those uh, is, of course, the, uh, the one that was touched upon in the last question as well. And it's about stringent rule-based AML regulatory measures, which may unnecessarily exclude segments of the population from accessing financial services, and in fact, encourage cash transactions which are harder to track. Uh, this, in turn, can undermine efforts to combat financial crime and hinder consumer protection efforts as well. It's therefore very important that we in realize the integration between AML and in inclusion policy objectives to enable access to all to the financial services. This would, in turn, make the financial system more transparent and resilient, and also, at the same time, deter other unauthorized means of financial activities. It's a complex issue, but certainly can be resolved and simplified with an open mind and right objectives at heart. I encourage you all to take the free online self-paced learning, and it's a three-hour learning course that we have developed to guide you in developing an AML framework which could facilitate financial inclusion. Thank you, Maria Sophia. Thank you very much, Risha, and thank you everybody for joining in today and of course thank you to our panelists for this very insightful discussion i wanted to highlight something risha said all of these discussions there are some answers to these questions um in the training that risha mentioned and so i would very much encourage you to take the opportunity it's a free training it's self-paced you will receive a certificate on on completion and it's available on the Toronto Centre website. So 
do go ahead and take advantage of this great opportunity that we've put so much effort in developing to answer these types of questions. And with that, thank you again, everybody, for joining. Thank you to our panelists, and I wish you a very good day. You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode.